You are listening to the Doc Doc Goose Podcast. Hello and welcome to the first ever Doc Doc Goose podcast. I'm one of the docs. My name is Sean Palmer. One of the other docs, his name is Ben Imes. That's me. I'm a doctor. And our goose is with us today, Mr. Matt Imes. Not a doc. Matty's also our head goose. We're going to have multiple gooses from time to time. But we're so glad you're with us. It's a big responsibility to be the goose. Are you ready for it? Oh, yeah. We're the podcast that is never politically correct and always HIPAA compliant. First, let's talk about why we're doing the Doc Doc Goose podcast and the whole premise behind this thing. So why the Doc Doc Goose? Besides, it's kind of a funny thing that we thought of. It actually took us two years to think of that. Um, We're not very clever. We need to start with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to note that wasn't part of my thinking. That's just you two. (laughs) <laughs> so it took true. you two two years not me i wasn't part of this we actually just told you an hour ago that we were doing this exactly yeah, yeah. welcome to the you, podcast you were gonna goose. start off with just doc doc and i was like hey how about goose doc doc goose then we all got really up right around in circles and tap each other on the head yeah. we don't know what we're doing <laughs> so the reason that we're doing this podcast the reason of the doc doc goose so this is primarily a medical podcast um we're going to hit lots of different topics along the way so it's not just one specialty we didn't want to be just two medical professionals talking about stuff that no one's going to understand we want to be (laughs) we wanted to be able to capture not only patients but also medical providers um so this is a show for anyone that Um, is interested in their own health, interested in learning about medical topics, hopefully in a way that they can understand, which is the goose's role, that whenever uh, Dr. Imes and I say things that no one can understand, Matt's going to step in and say, what the heck are you talking about? Time out. Let's go back and talk about this. And hopefully adds a little bit of comedy along the way, hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, this is also a show, hopefully, that medical providers are going to enjoy because we're going to make light of what all of us do every day. Um, so hopefully we have some funny um, stories to pass along, things that everyone can relate to. So the reason that we, we did this and wanted to educate people is that Dr. Imes and I really have a, a passion for making sure we're educating our patients. You know, I make sure in, in my practice, I have a longer amount of time with, with new patients than with returning ones, just to make sure that we're educating appropriately. Um, I know Ben has the same, uh, the same passion for that. Uh, so the health literacy rate in America is about 12%. Now, what that means is that only about 12% of people that walk into their healthcare provider understand walking out of that appointment, what the provider said. Um, so anything that any of us can do to increase that number uh, is a win. In a sense, each of us can only influence the person sitting right in front of us in an appointment. Part of the reason for this is we're thinking, what ways can we influence maybe a larger population, larger amount of the population? Exactly. And, you know, both uh, my brother and I, I, if you didn't catch that earlier, uh, the goose and I are related. Mm-hmm. We We both actually have a a background in education. And so I was a teacher for a couple of years before I went to med school. And I'm still heavily involved in teaching with both medical students and uh, resident physicians. And I know my brother did some teaching as well, and is still involved with some teaching. And I'm the same way. I was adjunct faculty at Grand Canyon University, and I am a clinical instructor. So I take PT students through all the time. So all of us have a great background in, in education. What grades did you guys teach? Everything from kindergarten to high school. Wide variety. And, even, yeah, yeah, college even. So, yeah. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> Actually ben, you, more than high school, higher than high school. So college. And then Ben, you taught uh, younger grades too for a little while, didn't you? Yeah, I did fifth and sixth grade English and math. And then I also did high school advanced math. 
um, and English and orchestra, which was thrilling. That's going to come in handy here. Yeah. I was a uh, TA in chemistry in undergrad and also a writing tutor at my college. You know what? We kind of perfectly segued into the next the next portion of this, which is just getting to learn who the heck we are and why we're sitting here talking. Ben, you want to start us off or tell us a little about, about yourself? Yeah, so uh, I'm a physician, family medicine physician in Mesa, Arizona. I grew up out here in Arizona. I'm probably going to grow old and die out here in Arizona. I married my high school sweetheart. We have three kids. And uh, now, I, um, like I said, I'm very active in teaching still. I'm involved with Midwestern University uh, in teaching their students. I'm involved with AT Still Medical School uh, in teaching their students. And I'm involved heavily with the Mountain Vista Medical Center residency programs where I am uh, uh, faculty with the family medicine program and also recently appointed the OMM director over there. Congratulations. Yeah, it's very exciting. This is the uh, first official public announcement. So. What is the OMM director? Uh, so we're going to kind of hit this in the next podcast, I think, a little bit when we talk about DOs. Um, but I'm a DO as opposed to an MD. Part of that means that I practice a, a portion of medicine called OMM, which stands for Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine, which is a little bit of a mix between like a chiropractor and a massage therapist and a physical therapist. And so my job as the OMM director is to make sure that all of the residents uh, that go through Mountain Vista Medical Center uh, learn a little bit about those techniques. Congratulations, buddy. That's awesome. Yeah, that's exciting. That's, and then that's quite the bio. Pretty extensive. Yeah. Very fancy. And then you went to GCU for your undergrad. Exactly. I graduated there from with a, uh, <clears throat> a major in biology and a minor in chemistry. Maddie, go for it. Tell us about yourself. Yeah. So I'm an architect and small business owner over here in Phoenix. And um, I'm licensed as an architect in Arizona and Texas and work on commercial and residential projects and uh, been doing this on my own for the last four years and then before that worked in a number of firms and uh, got my degrees over at ASU and uh, actually went to Grand Canyon University for one year that's where I met Sean what a glorious year that was that was. It I really mean, was. Pretty amazing. But at the same time, I was happy to leave. <laughs> go on go on bigger, better things. And while this uh, podcast is not associated with your business at all, in case anybody wants to look for a licensed architect, what website would they go to to get a hold of you? Uh, if they want to get a hold of me, they could go <laughs> to my name. So it's mattimes.com. And my company's Another Look. And yeah, like I said, uh, we focus on architecture, but do interiors and custom furniture as well. If you're driving and you couldn't write that down, don't get into an accident. It's okay. It's on our website. Just go to Matt's bio page on there and there's a link. You can go to Matt's Sweet. website. See his Sweet. work. Thank you, Maddie. For me, my name is Sean Palmer. I'm a physical therapist. Again, I went to Grand Canyon University. That's where uh, all of us met, except for Matt and Ben. They met a little bit earlier than that. I got my Bachelor's of Science in Athletic Training from GCU, and I went on and got my doctorate in physical therapy from A.T. Still University, uh, which is an osteopathic school. So that will lead into the, the DO versus MD talk here in a little bit, uh, the osteopathic mentality. I have been involved in uh, really more of the sports and orthopedic uh, rehabilitation world. Uh, I've been a, a, an intern for the Milwaukee Brewers on their medical staff and the Oakland Raiders, as well as other college uh, affiliations. I've uh, worked in just general sports and orthopedic outpatient clinics since, uh, since I graduated. I'm currently the director of physical therapy for a company called Innovative Pain and Wellness in Scottsdale. We have a multi-specialty clinic with interventional pain management and physical therapy and chiropractic nutritional programs. We offer uh, cryotherapy chambers, a lot of fun modalities to try to take complicated cases and get them out of pain. 
So that is what I currently do. All right, for the main topic of today, MD versus DO. So as we stated, Ben is a DO. So we may be a little bit biased. Like I just said, I, I went to an osteopathic school as well. So I'm a little more attuned to that, uh, that philosophy of medicine. But let's talk about the differences between the two. Ben, give us a rundown. This is, uh, again, my, my biased opinion. Um, I'll try and be as objective as possible. But again, I am a DO, and so I think DOs are obviously much better. So DOs and MDs both have similar requirements uh, before they start medical school. So typically the path to medical school is finish high school, go to undergraduate somewhere, get your degree in something. Uh, most medical students typically have a degree in one of the sciences, so biology, chemistry, something along those lines. Um, but occasionally you'll find somebody, I was hanging out this weekend with a guy whose degree was in um, performing arts. Uh, I've had a couple students come through who've majored in like French um, or something a little bit more out there th like that. Um, but for the most part, most people uh, get a, a science degree and then they go to medical school. Both the DO and the MD medical schools are four years long. Uh, they cover basic sciences, so your chemistry, your biology, uh, anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology, uh, all those terrible things that really you shouldn't ever have to learn. Um, pathophysiology, thousand ways to die. One thousand ways to die. A thousand ways for Such things a depressing to depressing class. It's so terrible. You walk out of the class like, I'm going to die. My leg hurts. I have a DVT. I'm gonna, it's going to kill me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Every day you think, oh, there's something new wrong with me. <laughs> And so once you finish those four years, then typically you're going to go off to a residency. So after you finish medical school, you're officially a doctor, a physician at that point. Uh, and then you go off to residency where you specialize with further training. So for me, I'm family medicine trained. So I spent another three years uh, doing that. It's usually between three and five years that you spend after medical school getting specialized training. But sometimes it's up to another seven years uh, or even longer. The big difference between the two is pretty much in two different ways. So we kind of talked about the OMM earlier, the osteopathic manipulative medicine. And so that's something that only the DOs are taught in medical school. We get 300 extra hours on top of all the other medicine that we have to learn on learning how to do this manipulative medicine. And typically we're focusing on musculoskeletal issues. So low back pain, neck pain, and there is some uh, place for it. You know, some doctors will use it to treat headaches and cold symptoms, uh, but typically it's used more for the skeletal issues. Um, the other thing that makes DOs a little bit different is the philosophy behind the education. And that's where DOs are taught from the very beginning that each person is made up of mind, body, and spirit. And that if you affect one of those aspects, the other two are going to be affected also. And so when a patient comes in to see a DO, the DO is, at least in their initial training, is taught to say, hey, uh, is their mind compromised? Well, what else is being compromised? How is their physical health? How's their emotional health? Whether or not that plays out in the real world um, is always kind of a mixed bag, uh, but that's definitely the philosophy that are taught to the DOs. And that's not to say that the MDs look at a person and say, oh, there's just a, a hunk of meat who has a disease. Um, but the DOs are specifically taught, hey, mind, body, spirit, approach every patient that way. I think that's probably about it. I don't know. What what questions do you guys have? Maddie, I'm sure you have something. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, I don't even know. I don't know where to start. Um, so, I mean, part of this is I, I know a little more about DOs just because I know you, Ben. Yeah. And I've, I mean, we've spoken throughout your time going to school and um, I've had a chance to learn more about it. Um, I think for me is really eye-opening just to figure out, like you said, uh, the aspect of what DOs are taught and how they look at patients um, that really made me more aware of you know this different different approach to uh to medicine and um i remember you telling me at one point that 
uh, DOs look at um, at natural healing being the first step before looking towards medication. And so is that still the case nowadays? Uh, I think that's a good point. That's another uh, thing that we're taught is that the body is really designed very well and is capable of self-healing. Um, we're kind just, of like Wolverine. Just, in just case. exactly. Yeah. For those in of you comic book nerds out there like like me. All, all, all these geese out there like me. Yes. Not doctors. <laughs> not doctors. We don't know about yes. Wolverine. Uh, but the body is capable of self-healing to a, a very reasonable extent. And, uh, you know, as much as we want, we can, we want to encourage that. And if we don't have to use medications, again, I try not to use medications if I don't have to. And uh, one of the things that all my new patients get to hear from me uh, is that all medicine really has the potential to be poison. And I'm not going to poison my patients just for fun. So, so the reason you do that because of long-term effects or just like you're saying, potential for something to go wrong based on case-by-case scenario? Uh, For both of them. Uh, There's some medications that don't have really, like, they won't show their long-term effects, like you said, their side effects for a long time. And so, you know, 30 years down the road, then you're going to see effects from that medication. And that's a very bad thing to do to a person. Uh, And some of them have very immediate side effects that can be very uh, dangerous and life-altering. And so if I don't have to give medication, I don't want to give medication. I'd rather encourage somebody to heal on their own. If someone says they want to go to a DO because they're more holistic, what does that mean to you? Uh, I think that's kind of along the lines that we're talking. Uh, I'll tell you, in practice, a lot of times it's tough to say uh, from just even interacting with somebody, oh, this is a DO, this is an MD. Uh, a lot of times those lines get blurred throughout the course of training, uh, unfortunately. Uh, to me, though, being more holistic would just be, again, not throwing medicine at every single problem, but really trying to get to the root of problems and helping people understand where their disease is coming from. And part of <clears throat> that question, uh, I was curious what your viewpoint is, because everyone's viewpoint for holistic is completely different. Um, right. And and really the reason for that is there is not a very good definition for what holistic means. I guess in some terms, it's almost like made up because there isn't like a board of holistic medicine that you know, regulates who can call themselves holistic and you know you have to get licensed by it. Like I can say, hey, I'm a holistic physical therapist. No one can say anything because right. there's nothing that, that pre-qualifies that. It's a very ambiguous term, and I think that's not a good question to ask your doctor if you go into your doctor's office and say, hey, are you holistic? Uh, you know, exactly. You just, your doctor's probably going to say yes. <laughs> uh, most people don't want to be not holistic, so uh, it doesn't mean anything, unfortunately. Hey, uh, um, so I wanted to ask you guys, uh, DO versus MD. Like, like what our physician is? Yeah, sure. We'll go with that. Okay, mine's a DO right now. I'm not against having either, but mine right now is a DO. Matt, yeah, me, me too. DO. Is your physician uh, your brother? Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> that's, that's correct. <laughs> you really ben? have the best physician in the whole world. Congratulations, <laughs> brother. Yes. Ben, yeah. what's your physician? My physician is an MD. That's embarrassing. I know. <laughs> I what? know, but... Yes. What do you like about your physician? Uh, My physician is uh, one of my uh, mentors through uh, residency and somebody I trust. Uh, I know that he's looking out for my best interest. So uh, that's probably what I like most. Is is it still your pediatrician that you just have never like transitioned (laughs) away from? (laughs) Yeah, I keep going back to, uh, you know, happy, happy children time pediatrics. And uh, I, I don't really fit through the door anymore, but... It's like friends where Ross is sitting in the waiting room with the sucker. Yeah, but I know they give me a sucker every time, so it's worth it for me. So, <laughs> so one thing that that so I was uh, talking to um, the, the owner of of the company I work working is a is a uh, an MD, and I was talking to him about the differences between MD and DO to get just a different perspective from an MD, and he largely said there's really no difference. Like we're we're trained the same. Um, 
you know, you just talked about like in his residency. So he's an anesthesiologist first. And, uh, he's like, I had professors that were DOs. I had, you know, um, clinical instructors that were DOs. Um, one thing he brought up that was interesting to me is that, so here in Arizona, we're a very DO friendly state, but some states aren't so much that the laws are different state to state. Um, I think from my understanding is for like how you can get hospital rights and stuff like that. Can you speak to how that the laws change a little bit state to state, what some people can expect. Uh, you know, that's a good question. Uh, that was probably true in the late nineties and early two thousands. At this point in time, DOs have full practice rights in all 50 States. Um, yeah, fantastic. So the, really the big issue becomes internationally, uh, where DOs aren't as, uh, well known and recognized. Yep. Um, but that's becoming less and less of a concern as, as DOs are becoming more and more uh, known. Um, really, it's a fairly young branch of medicine and was really originated in the early 1900s. And so it's it's just kind of taken a while for it to go international. Pop quiz, who's the father of osteopathy? Goose, do you know the answer? Oh my gosh, are you serious? And <laughs> <laughs> it's not George Washington. If you get this one, I, I don't know what I'm going to give you, but I'll be more than impressed. Give me a, a, a period of like years. Uh, a range. Early 1900s? A.T. still. <laughs> yeah, I saw that Ben typed that on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really good guess, Matt. Well done. I didn't well, know if I should say A.T. still or at still. <laughs> what, Probably what, could have clarified that. What does A.T. Yeah. stand for? Yeah, you should have spaced out the A and T. So <laughs> just, just for clarity. <laughs> Andrew Taylor still. So A.T. Wow. still university, which is an osteopathic school. That's where I, I got my doctorate from. That is named after him the doctor of osteopathy or the father of osteopathy and there you go. what is osteo osteopathy have you been paying attention the last half hour no <laughs> <laughs> it's everything that a do does so it's really that focus on mind body spirit the body is able to heal itself innately and um using uh the body's uh innate mechanisms to help itself heal so working with uh, muscles and bones to help itself heal yeah i missed that in <laughs> design school we didn't go through that so. <laughs> really i thought i'd be right behind what's a window and what's a door then the next the next thing is what's, yeah, what's a do yeah, pretty close <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe you were sick that day yeah probably for this week's show we want to talk about a new modality that is becoming more and more popular all the time in the states called cryotherapy that's c-r-y-o therapy um so to make sure that we could adequately talk about this we all had to do it so the clinic i work in we have cryotherapy chambers so i've done it fairly recently and uh i've done it a lot but I had the pleasure of bringing Ben and Matt through it for their first times. What'd you guys think of it? Cold, very cold. Yeah. As, as somebody who's raised in Arizona, man, that was not cool. That was really cold. <laughs> so quick background of what cryotherapy is. Cryotherapy really is, is a little bit newer on the world stage. It was in invented in 1979 by a, Japanese rheumatologist who would um, deliver this this cold you know, nitrogen to patients' joints to freeze them. So these are these are patients with rheumatoid arthritis to to freeze the joints before manipulating them, uh, which would help decrease the pain. A couple of years after that, a German researcher started actually um, introducing whole body cryotherapy. So they put the whole person inside of uh, chambers that cold. Um, so we're going to talk about temperatures down to negative 150 Celsius or 238 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And they started seeing that it would decrease patients' pain, decrease inflammation. Um, and there are lots of other uh, effects as well. 
Um, Death. (laughs) (laughs) So when this first started becoming big, I'd say a little over a decade ago, uh, the word spread here that they had these these chambers uh, throughout Europe. Like our professional athletes would fly over on the off season to uh, to recover, basically, because uh, it does help with post uh, post workout recovery and all that. So after a long uh, baseball or football season, whatever, our athletes would go out there to use these chambers. Now, within the last decade, these chambers have started to come here, especially within just the last few years. It started becoming a little more mainstream here. You don't see maybe as many of these saunas popping up just because the nitrogen, either the nitrogen to run them is really expensive. Also, the chambers themselves are really expensive. Um, There are two types of chambers. There's a uh, chambers that use nitrogen. That's what what, uh, we have all gone through. That's what we have at my clinic. And then there are electric chambers, which are basically like if you've ever uh, worked in a restaurant or been back in the uh, in the kitchen of a restaurant, basically what those big fridges are, uh, that hold the food. It's kind of that idea, but even colder. So it's, it really is this big chamber or room that you walk into and those are incredibly expensive. So those are the two different ones you see because like I said, the costs are so high. You don't see as many of these places popping up or some of them that, that come in go out of business kind of quick. Um, cause they're just not prepared to deal with those, those costs while they're trying to ramp up volume. What it's used for couple things first primarily decreasing pain decreasing inflammation so decreasing inflammation automatically decreases pain because we have all these tiny capillaries that if an area is inflamed all these capillaries are inflamed they're bigger than they should be and we're talking on a microscopic level but they're bigger than they should be so if you can decrease the size of those capillaries so what what's called vasoconstricting or capillary constriction that it's going to take pressure off of uh, those nerve endings, which is just going to decrease your pain. It's also used frequently for weight loss. So going through a chamber in those temperatures speeds up your metabolism, which is going to burn more calories. So you can burn up to 800 calories from doing a three minute cryotherapy session. Besides that, there are different effects that aren't well studied. They're very anecdotal, but some people just feel an immense amount of energy uh, kind of clarity throughout the rest of the day. Some people sleep really well after it. So that's a, that's something that I feel if I'm, if I'm really low on sleep, I go through a cryotherapy uh, session and that night I'm, I usually sleep like a baby. Um, well, and Sean, I think you were telling me that you have a patient that comes in every couple of weeks just so you can get a little bit better sleep. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's really some of the pages for that. And to some people, especially like new parents or something, they would pay for, for a little bit of good sleep, a little bit of extra sleep. Yeah. <laughs> it's not very well studied. Like there aren't good FDA studies or anything yet. It's still new enough that we don't have great data. A lot of it's just anecdotal or just, you know, what people say they feel like we know that they can study uh, metabolism and how much uh, someone's uh, metabolic rate speeds up. So we got that down, but then we just have the anecdotal stuff of of decreasing pain. We know that ice, uh, the cold temperatures decrease um, the size of the blood vessels, the capillaries. <clears throat> so those things we can absolutely you know, know for sure. But again, when explaining it to patients, I just have to tell them we don't hundred percent, you know, all the things that it does. It's just not studied, you know, anything else that, that a medical professional tells you should be able to be well-researched. You should have a lot of evidence-based, you should have a lot of evidence behind it. Most of most medicine today is what's called evidence-based practice. <laughs> Um, so we have a lot of good research behind everything that we do. Cryotherapy isn't quite there yet. And that's why it's so, not really a medical modality, let's say. Sean, what made you guys want to invest in this and actually offer cryotherapy? It was A, it's kind of trendy. B, that it is one more tool that can help patients get out of pain. Not everyone's going to want to do it, but sometimes we really have to talk people into it. Um, but it's just one more thing to try to help some of the complex patients that we see uh, get some amount of relief. And the, like the fibromyalgia patients that we've put through it, now, now there's some that just don't want to do it because they think it's just going to be too uncomfortable. But the ones that have braved it have actually said that they have a good decrease in pain for like the rest of the day, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's helped them in some amount of way, you know, people that deal with chronic pain that, that just feel a high amount of pain every day, 
hey, power to them. It's it's a natural thing. It's fairly cheap for the consumer side. You know, so it's a win-win if you're not using medication to to get pain down. You know, I had a um uh, since we've done this, I actually had a patient come in to see me and we really kind of exhausted all of her pain medication options. She's got fibromyalgia. Um, and so I finally just said, Hey, let's, let's try some cryotherapy, see if that works for you. Um, and then come back in and see me and tell me all about it. Uh, that was about two weeks ago and I, she never came back, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) but she, she's supposed to within the next week or two. So if that ever happens, I'll update you guys. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing that. uh, Yeah. Good story so far. Uh, I recommended somebody and she never came back. So, but it's something that I'm, I'm actively recommending to my patients because of my experience with it. What did you feel um, when you did it? So I, I, I mean, the, the, the easy answer is I felt really cold. You got, it was so cold. It was the worst cold I've ever experienced in my life. Oh, yeah. Um, but afterwards, uh, after I kind of recovered from that already, I, I had been sore going into it from a workout the day before and already like coming out of it, I felt less sore. Um, and by the next day, like all my post-workout soreness was gone, which normally will last for a couple days. So that was a really nice thing. Uh, for me, it didn't help me sleep at all. It kept me awake all night long. But uh, um, wait, 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 wait! You said it kept you awake all night long. It did not keep you awake all night long. What kept yes. you awake all night long? It, no, post cryotherapy <laughs> destroyed my metabolism, made me so jittery all night long. I didn't sleep at all. Uh, but I burned like fourteen thousand calories that night. So that works. Yeah, you you shake so much. It's like <laughs> it's insane. Yeah, it is a deep shiver. You just cannot control. You're like, this doesn't hurt. I just can't stop shaking. I couldn't (laughs) stop. It was it was rough. But again, like I said, the post-workout soreness relief was fantastic. And I'll tell you, you know, this isn't true everywhere. But because I've been recommending this to my patients, I've been doing like trying to figure out where it's pretty cheap. And if you do a group on for these, they can be pretty cheap, uh, at least for the first time or two. So. If you really want to know if you're in Phoenix and want to know good places to go, you can actually go to our website and on our blog, we have a blog up about cryotherapy. So you can read about all this. You can see the video of us doing it. Um, another video that was done by Groupon that, that explains it better. And there's also a link to the Groupon for my clinic that we have Ooh. our chamber on Groupon. And I can tell you, we are the cheapest in town. Nice. Now can I make you- a quick note on that video. So you see Ben and I shaking like crazy, uncontrollable shaking, can't even stand still, can't even speak. And then Sean comes in there and he looks all smug, straight faced. Well, there's a reason because Sean went third and apparently the, the crowd therapy machine was running out of nitrogen. So... Sean didn't get to the full effect that Ben and I did. We, we were down to minus 248, and Sean was down to positive 60. So I, I see where you guys are going with this. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. <laughs> but that recording of me was not taken that day. Oh. That recording oh. was me at max temperature that I had one of my employees take of me. So, ha. Huh, Ha, wow. ha. <laughs> Don't blame me that I'm more of a man than you two. <laughs> just so, just well, better trained. Better trained. Been I'm, through I'm used so to many it. sessions. You're used to it. You You're two, immune. You two, we got the fresh perspective of someone oh, yeah. experiences for the first time. It's That was probably my 20, 30th time I've done it. So <laughs> here's a question I get asked all the time, um, and I'm going to put this to you two because I'm tired of answering it. Uh, when you do cryotherapy, do you have to be naked? No. Uh, so guys have to have at least like boxer briefs on, um, testicles cannot get that cold. Uh, you don't want to freeze your giblets. <laughs> you do uh, not want to freeze the giblets. Why um, didn't anyone tell me that? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Late news. <laughs> um, it's women can go completely naked if they want to. Um, you want to wear as little as possible. So you get the full effect. If you, the more layers you have on, 
you know, the more cold that you're shielded from. So you're really not going to get the full effect of it. <laughs> One of the other talks we have to have with people because they are wearing very little is that you're in this chamber that fills with the nitrogen fog and uh, nitrogen fog is 0% oxygen. So you breathe that stuff in, you are passing out. And so we have to have a fun talk with people saying, don't breathe that in as fun as it is to kind of blow on it and all that stuff. If you breathe it in, you pass out. We have a naked person that's passed out in our chamber that we have to get out and resuscitate <laughs> or get them out of that. So this is going to be awkward for you and us. So please don't breathe in the nitrogen fog. <laughs> <laughs> also a good point. Um, when I was doing kind of research on, on what cryotherapy is and how it works, there's a lot of bad information out there. I just kind of want to point yeah. that out. I went to one website um, on the first page of Google. I'm not going to tell you which one it was. Um, but it uh, basically said that the way that this works is by, like like Sean was saying, that vasoconstriction, pushing all the blood back to the center of the body, um, which very true. But then they were saying that once it gets to the center of the body, now that it's all close to the lungs, it gets super oxygenated. And then... Super blood. Super blood. And then when you get out of the chamber, all that blood is then able to go back out to the rest of the body and bring super oxygen to the rest of the body. Um, that's malarkey. Okay. You, you can't uh, have more than a hundred percent perfusion. In, in, right. In exactly. So, uh, normal human blood, no extra credit uh, tends to have between 97 and 99 up to a hundred percent oxygen saturation. Anyway, just because you force it all to the lungs, you can't get more than a hundred percent saturation. That's physiologically impossible. Once you start doing that, you get air bubbles in the body, and that would cause you to form clots that could potentially kill you. So you don't want that to happen. Um, so that's not actually what happens. Just for those of you who decide to go read on Google and figure out how this works, it does not super oxygenate your blood. Again, if you go to our website at ddgpodcast.com slash blog, We've got a blog all about it. You can read all you need to know about cryotherapy. So don't even bother going anywhere else. Exactly. Exactly. Maddie, how's your experience? Uh, you know, it was <laughs> Your video was my favorite. When we <laughs> asked you how you were doing and your answer was no. <laughs> yeah, so cold. You didn't so, even know so what we cold. asked you. <laughs> so it's good though. So... I, I love trying new techniques, new things, uh, just for my own understanding, get better idea of uh, what's going on, what I'm feeling, uh, how it works. And uh, this was this was uh, an experience. So um, I did notice, like Ben mentioned, uh, definitely a relief of uh, pain and stress within my body um after the fact during the fact there's lots of stress and pain just <laughs> your whole body's cramping up and you're <laughs> ready to like i don't know pass out just from i don't know i can't even describe it it's so cold but at the end of the day it's i think it could do good things I don't think I was necessarily in a place that I needed it, but um, yeah, is is good overall. So, for or against? Uh, I'd say for. Yeah, I'm for it. Um, just under the notion that it can be used to um, help relieve some pain. Would you do it again? Uh, that's a good question. If the circumstances were right, yes. <laughs> Meaning not cold, but warm, yes. <laughs> ben, would you do it again? Uh, yes, I would. I, I thought I got good enough relief out of it that it'd be worth it for me. Uh, I am definitely for cryotherapy until I see any reason to be against it. So what about and... you? Yeah, I've done it, like I said, many, many times um, at, at full temperature. And you guys, I was kind of unfair to you guys. I put you at max temperature right out of the gates. 
Uh, you guys start at negative 150. We usually start at negative 120. So people kind of get a feel for what it is. And then we start increasing them after that. So you guys took it like champs. Good work. Um, and like you said, until there's reason not to do it, it's extremely safe. Um, you'll even have like the, the, the companies that have the electric chambers, not the nitrogen ones say that, oh, nitrogen isn't safe. It is. There, there's no difference. There's only one, I believe one documented death and it wasn't because of the nitrogen. It was because, okay, there are warning symbols all over these machines that say, do not do a self-treatment. So you can't be the operator and the client at the same time. And I believe it was a girl to Vegas, uh, cryotherapy spa. Um, end of the day, wanted to put herself through it, turned on the machine, got into it, and she passed out. Um, so they found her the next day. Oh. So that's really the only documented uh, death from it. Otherwise, it's it's a completely safe thing. As long as the contraindications are followed, there's a long list of them. From having open wounds to having uh, a pacemaker to having high blood pressure, as long as the clinic is doing what's safe uh, beforehand. So one thing I'll tell you is that it, the clinic that you go into or, or spa, whatever you go into where, where they have these chambers, hopefully they're taking blood pressure first um, because that is one of the contraindications that we do. I don't want to say frequently, but sometimes we have to turn people away because their blood pressure is too high. Um, and I've, I have helped one of the other cryotherapy companies here in town develop their, uh, their pre, uh, pre screening and they weren't taking blood pressure before. And I talked them through why they need to, um, and they've since changed how they do that, but just make sure the places take your blood pressure that, you know, it's safe. Your blood pressure is controlled because your blood pressure does increase about 10 points while you're in the chamber. So if you're already dangerously high, we don't want to increase that uh, chance heart attack and stroke. I feel like that's a reasonable policy. Uh, it's bad for patients to walk in and not walk out. And, and the policy is, <laughs> we should put that on a card somewhere. Um, our policy is you walk in and walk out. Um, the, the cutoff is 160 over 100. And... <clears throat> Believe it or not, probably in the last week, we've turned away two or three people because uh, we take their blood pressure and say, you're too high. You can't do it. Um, yeah. These are even people sometimes on blood pressure medication. It's like, oh, geez. Yeah, that's a little high. Um, now, you, we talked a little bit about nitrogen. Some people say nitrogen is dangerous. Uh, Goose, I'd like to ask you a question here. What, what percent of Earth's air is made up of nitrogen? Oh gosh. Ah, 30. 30. Uh, other doc? Isn't 70? Ooh, pretty close. Uh, with every breath, you are breathing in 79% oxygen. So close. Or 78% 78, 78 oxygen, sorry. And it's 21%, or 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen. Wow. There so, you go. Nitrogen safe. Nitrogen reasonably safe you just don't want 100 percent nitrogen because that leaves no oxygen that's where you start passing out that's when you start passing and out death. and then you don't walk out of the clinic so for everyone again that wants to see a video of us going through it you can go to our website ddgpodcast.com gonna stands for doc doc goose ddgpodcast.com um and then we also recorded audio so let's hear some great clips from the cast going through it. Oh, it's cold. You're already cold? Yeah, dude. Good luck. I'm born from Arizona. Good luck. Do you want this? I do. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> so I want you to walk us through the experience. What are you feeling? Not much right now. <laughs> uh, it's really cold so far. Um, there's lots of fog coming up around me, and it's getting a lot colder. <laughs> Can't can't really feel much. Okay, uh, my chest area. Oh, it's losing sensation. And uh, oh, I can can barely feel my toes right now. Okay, it's getting a, a lot colder. Okay. Uh, am I supposed to be doing turns or something? Yeah, go ahead and take a turn. Yeah. And hey, don't breathe that stuff in. You're gonna die. Okay. <sighs> um. You're negative eighty-four. Okay. Your head. Feels 
you're almost halfway, you're halfway <laughs> where you're going right now. Okay, it feels like negative 84. Um, cool. It's, it's really cold. <laughs> I'm gonna do another quarter turn because my giblets are a little freezing. <gasps> okay. That quarter turn was a bad idea. <laughs> That uncontrollable shiver, isn't that fun? Uh, yeah. You're at negative 123 right now. Okay. My legs. You got 45 seconds. My legs are so cold. <laughs> it's so cold. I'm really glad I have gloves on. Oh, here comes more. What? <laughs> Why is there more? Uh, I can feel the pain leaving my body, though. You would do this for another minute. <laughs> Ten seconds. You okay. can do it. Ten seconds. Okay. Oh boy, that's. Oh, oh praise the Lord. <laughs> Max temp was negative 142 that you hit. Oh, that was good. Mostly blue. <laughs> what was mostly blue? Not all of it. <laughs> so Maddie's in the cryo tank right now. Oh, God. So cold. <laughs> so Matt is 30 seconds in right now. He's negative 80 degrees Celsius. He's headed toward negative 150 as well. Maddie, how are you feeling about life right now? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't even want to talk right now. I'm just trying to focus on staying alive, breathing. Oh. Oh, God. Should All I right, turn? Make a little turn. You're negative 128. Oh. oh. Yours is getting colder than Ben's did and faster. Oh, gosh. <laughs> the worst part is that uncontrollable shiver. Yeah. So there's no way to stop. <laughs> no, no. It looks this way. All right, turn again. Oh. <laughs> but it feels like I'm doing the, like, worm. <laughs> We're at negative 138 oh. degrees. <laughs> Oh, three no, seconds, no, three I, seconds. I sit there like covering myself the entire time. Were you? And then, and then I lifted <sighs> him up, and I was like, "Oh, that was a bad idea." <laughs> so Matt just finished. How, how are you feeling right now, Matt? Well, better now that it's off. But that's <laughs> <sighs> about the coldest I've ever been. Cooling down for me, guys. This is gonna be fun. Yeah, uh, we are with Sean Palmer here. Sean Palmer getting into the uh, cryo chamber. How you feeling, Sean? Good right now. Negative 35. This is a breeze so far. Uh, a slightly cold breeze, that is. I'm always curious like what your guys experience is like compared to mine since I've done it like so much. Right. So <laughs> I always love hearing people do it for the first time. We may almost be out of nitrogen. It's not going very fast. And there's no fog. I think we ran out. Yeah, mine is 72 though. <laughs> Usually when I do it, I'm, I do it at negative 150 for three minutes. And like that last minute, no matter how used to it you are, it's tough. Like you gotta talk yourself through it. So for one of our segments that we want to do, we're going to be introducing several segments along the way. 
one of the first ones we introduce is we want to take a look at the health, wellness, medical articles that are in the news uh, every day. Some are outlandish and stupid. Some is really good advice. So here's our look at this week's articles. Ben, start us off. What article you got for us? So my article comes from a website that I frequent called kevinmd.com. Yes, I do like the MDs. Uh, and this is a blog that aggregates a bunch of different um, medical opinions and articles. Uh, this one is called, What is One Thing That Separates Good Doctors from Great Ones? And uh, gentlemen, I'd like to see if you know the answer. No. <laughs> okay, you don't know the answer, but uh, do you have a guess as to what separates a good doctor from a great doctor? Ones that give you suckers uh, on the way out, if you're a good boy. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, my office has a whole drawer full of suckers. Nice. Stickers too? That you don't no give stickers. out. Yeah, I don't um, give them out. I just sneak them throughout the day. So I'd say a fish tank in the office. with Fish no, tank, definitely. Not with like little clownfish, like sharks. Ooh, that would be a good doctor's <laughs> office. And an octopus. If you have an octopus, you are a good doctor. Okay, <laughs> oh Matt, what do you think? <laughs> and, a, and a large TV. Ooh. Oh, yeah, got out TV. Um, yeah, for me, what I would say is it's got to be based on uh, just how they treat me or how they treat the patient. So a doctor that's understanding, that's relatable, uh, that doesn't speak in uh, high up doctor lingo. And um, yeah, that's, uh, that actually feels like they are looking out for my best interest. Dude, that is fantastic. You almost nailed it exactly. And so what, what this article comes to the conclusion to is that the best doctors are not necessarily the ones who know the most. Um, they're the ones who are the most empathetic. Um, certainly, it's important to know a little bit about the medicine that you're using. But uh, uh, they have a quote in here from Sir William Osler, which obviously makes him a very smart guy because he has Sir before him, uh, who once said, the good physician treats the disease and the great physician treats the the patient who has the disease treats the patient is yes. that referring to a lollipop treat <laughs> no and this is i mean it really it's seeing that context of the patient when they come in you know what what are they really there for what what are they looking for and showing a little bit of empathy and not being just a robot who walks into the room says you have diabetes here is your metformin goodbye i mean that's good medicine, but it's not a good doctor. Sweet. So what do you what do you think you are? Are you a good doctor? Great doctor. Um, so I Those lay claim options? to hold on, I'm gonna tell you what my option is. I lay claim to the title of world's greatest physician. Wow. Uh this is a elected position. I recently <laughs> elected myself. <laughs> um all in favor. Ah! Yeah, don't you I, need I, a second to be elected? Uh, I also seconded myself. <laughs> yeah. Nah, and it was unanimous after that. Yeah. Um, in medical school, I read a book uh, called First, Don't Kill Any Patients. <laughs> <laughs> or something along those lines. Um, and uh, in there, he talks about how to be the world's greatest physician. And uh, uh, that's really the first line is don't kill your patients. So huh? Good philosophy thank you that's nice. why you're my doctor <laughs> <laughs> good maddie what you got i have an article from health.com and this one let's see here the the title of this is the germiest place in an airport and this talks about where you get the most diseases when you're in an airport. Where do they come from? And so some of the options would be handrails, such as stairs, 
escalators, um, even in elevators, um, check-in kiosks. A lot of airports now have the self-check-ins. And so you get a lot of different people touching screens, uh, sneezing on screens, um, children's play areas. Not sure if I've seen that in an airport, but I'm sure there are children's play areas. Um, and then toilets, bathrooms. That's toilets slash bathrooms. So um, just bathrooms, I think, in a sense, are always related to the subject as being dirty areas. But um, in this article, this kind of states that these are one of the cleanest areas. So, and then the last option was security trays. So when you're going through security checks, security screening, oh, you have to put your bags, your phone, everything in these plastic trays and then send them through the x-ray. And the it's winner was... The trays. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. Which, I'm pretty which sure the dirtiest place is when I get felt up by TSA. And they're passing on all those diseases to me. Not, you guys not, get those not emotionally the dirtiest. We're talking about physically the dirtiest, <laughs> like germs. Oh. All right. Then I'm going to go with the trays also. <laughs> and you're correct. It is security <laughs> trays. So uh... this, when reading this, this kind of surprised me. Um, I go, I, I've been through the airport quite a bit this last year. And... Um, I have not gone sick yet from the airport, as far as I know. And so, um, but to hear that security trays are what causes the most uh, sickness and holds the most diseases just kind of shocked me. I mean, when you think about it, everybody's putting their shoes in them. Everybody's touching them. Multiple people are touching them. I mean. Yeah, everyone has to touch those trays. It's not like you have an option. Right. That's pretty nasty. Jeez. And Thanks so, for running the airport for us. So from doctor's point of view, what are some ways we can combat this? Or Drive to your destination. Don't it. fly. Drive. <laughs> Don't fly. Yes. Don't fly. Um, There's an ocean you know, drive really fast. Hydroplane right over it. <laughs> so I had a patient ask me this question today, uh, completely unrelated to this podcast. And she said that her strategy is she carries a little bottle of spray sanitizer with her. She sprays her bend down before she uh, puts anything in there. And then she sprays herself down after she puts anything in there. And then once she makes it through the checkpoint, she sprays herself again. That may be and a little bit of overkill. But... It, it does sound overkill, but that's exactly what the article suggests. Is Maybe it really? not that much, but oh. it says bring hand sanitizer. Wipe down tray first. So, yeah. Now, Ben, you're patient. Can... That sort of strategy is all fun and games until you mix up that spray with your mace in the middle of an airport. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little pepper spray for everybody around you. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> That was good. So uh, to sum that up, uh, airport security trays, very dirty. Yeah. Don't lick airport security trays. <laughs> and there you have it, folks. DDG Gross. saving another life. <laughs> Mine this week. Maddie, I can. This is weird, but I can hear myself because you flipped your the thing up. <laughs> oh, sorry. Because this boy turned it's... the microphone. It's making my head so hot. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but my ears are like filled with sweat. I'm good over now here. Now that you mention it, mine are. Are they? Yeah, but my I've got nice soaky up. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm like burning balls. up over here. Oh. Sorry. That's okay. So we consume a lot of alcohol in this country. A new study actually found that one in six Americans or 37 million Americans are binge drinkers. So let's define what binge drinking is. That's drinking for men, five or more drinks for women, four or more drinks in a two hour period. That's how they define binge drinking. So this article 
lists the top 20 cities that have the highest number of binge drinkers. I'm curious. I'm sorry, state, not city. What state do you guys think would be number one? Is, wait, and is why? this based on percentage or number of people? So they, they ranked it on percentage of the population okay. that binge drink. Um, they also rated on frequency of binge drinking, binge drinking episodes among binge drinkers. So if you're a binge drinker, how many, how often do you binge drink? And then they have one other marker and I, it, I didn't really pay attention to the explanation of that one. I think the first two were good enough. Any guesses? Kansas. Kansas. Why? Why Kansas? What else are you supposed to do in Kansas? Farm? Yeah, exactly. Farm. <laughs> what else? Uh, Honestly, I was, was going to say Jayhawk? something. I was oh, going to yeah. say something similar. Uh, Missouri. Oh, yeah. I'm it's in the name. Misery. Uh, <laughs> they got to drink their pain away. Okay. But I, you know, and honestly, I, I, I would guess maybe Nevada because of Las Vegas. See, that'd be Is a that... very good one. Is that a is that a good guess? I haven't read the article. It's a great guess. You're wrong, but it's a great guess. Oh, thank you. Let's click through this real quick. Okay. Because some of the states might surprise you. Number twenty, because it's just the top twenty. Number twenty is New Hampshire. Okay. Don't know why. No, I'll, I'll tell you. Nobody really cares about New Hampshire. Let's let's move yeah. on. Number twenty. Who cares? Would you be surprised if I told you that Louisiana was number 18 so not high on this list i mean uh, we're talking about a little mardi happens yeah, here. Mardi we're talking Gras. new orleans and louisiana is at eight is at 18 so only 18 percent of the population are binge drinkers there that's pretty good congratulations louisiana colorado was on this list they were 18.1 percent they're at number 17 ohio made number 12 Michigan's 11. Hawaii is number 10. Wow. All right. See, I thought the colder climates for sure are going to be high on it. Because what else do you have to do? What helps keep yeah. you warm during the winter? You're stuck inside. It's depressing. You know, it's snowing all the time. It's dark. I mean, the Russians learned this years ago. Vodka. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. Right. Okay. You ever, you ever had the, the drink of duck fart? Nice and warm. <laughs> nice and warm. Hmm. Hey, what do you, what, what cracked the top five there? Well, real quick along those lines of cold, oh. Alaska is number nine. I thought Alaska okay. would be a little bit higher, but it's a little more sparse population. So I guess that they can't count that. Top five. Number five, Illinois. So Chicago has some drinkers. It's probably the Irish that live in Chicago that make up the largest percentage of the binge drinkers. Oh, uh, yeah. Every year, St. Patty's Day comes around. Everybody in Chicago drinks. Number four, Iowa. So along the uh, the th the same themes as Kansas. Yeah. Number three, Montana. Yeah. Okay. What goes better at stake? Beer and wine. <laughs> Number two is a tie, and I can understand one of them. I can't understand the other one. One is Wisconsin. Got it. The one it's cheese and football. There you go. I, I'm really curious. They broke it down by what day of the week is more common for binge drinking. Cause if it's Sunday, I get it. Yep. Wisconsin's yeah. high. They're tied with Washington, DC, not a state for the purposes of this article, which I did not write. Thank MSN.com. <laughs> it's a state percent of binge drinking for those two is if it stops showing me oh boy it just took me off that article altogether oh wait for I'm, it the suspense is killing wait me right for now. it number one north dakota north dakota 24.9 percent is your binge drinking prevalence that's my second guess after kansas <laughs> <laughs> completely shocked I, I wish that these had an explanation for why it, like the why they think each state ranks where it does and i'm i'm very uh, disappointed that they don't have an explanation of this so there you go north dakota number one binge drinking state in the united states strong work north dakotans 
you're, you're number one in something. All right. There's our articles for the week. We will post links to all these on our blog page uh, on our website. Again, www.ddgpodcast.com. Every week we're going to put all of our articles on there. Uh, we'll probably put it out on Twitter too. We'll see if I get around to it. All right. Now each week to end off the show, we're going to have a question of the week for people to respond to. Maddie, what's our question of the week this week? Is dog food healthy for human consumption? Whoa, that's some heavy stuff there. And if you think it is, what's your favorite dog food to consume? Uh, hopefully we're going to have a Facebook poll about this soon. <laughs> Thank you for mentioning that. Actually, you can go onto any of our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the DDG podcast. That's the T H E D D G podcast. Or you can go over to our website at www.ddgpodcast.com and you can just contact us through there. Send us an email. Can't uh, wait to hear what dog food tastes best. Exactly. And so I'd like to do a I quick really wrap up here. Uh, today we learned about all of our people who are on the blog or on the podcast today. We have Matt the Goose. We have Ben Imes, one of the doctors, and we have Sean Palmer, the other doctor. We learned about MDs versus DOs, and DOs came out the clear winner. We talked about cryotherapy. We have two docs four and one goose four. Uh, give that one a go. We talked about how to find the best doctor, somebody who's empathetic. We talked about uh, staying safe in the airport by not licking your security tray. And staying safe in North Dakota. And uh, if you go to North Dakota, be careful to watch out for those drunk drivers and everybody else been just drinking there. Hmm. And finally, we finished up with our question of the week, which I'm really interested to know how you people feel about this. I'm gonna go answer that question right now. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to the Doc Doc Goose podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the show, visit our website at www.ddgpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at the DDG Podcast.